All right, this morning we are going to cover the last of the spiritual gifts that I have left. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been journeying the last several weeks through a spiritual gift study, trying to understand what they are. And uh, I was intending originally to do this one early on in the series because Paul lists it as uh, a very prioritized gift. However, as I started getting into it then, I realized I have a lot of questions and I don't feel ready to teach on it. So I kicked it to the end. Behold, we're here and I still have a lot of questions. So it's been a difficult topic or gift for me to understand. Um, it carries a lot of questions with it. So if you get done with the study today and you feel like you're leaving with more questions than you have answered, I get it. Keep asking questions. We'll look at it together some more if you need. We're going to cover prophecy. Prophecy, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.1, he said this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Um, so I've titled this gift, The Gift to Desire Above All Others. It's the one that Paul lists at the top and encourages you to desire in particular. Prophecy, we're told in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, prophecy would be a defining mark of the new covenant when God would pour His Spirit out on the church. Here's what Joel 2, 28 says, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, Peter quoted that very verse as evidence to those who were looking on. This is what's happening and this is what's going on. And he quotes Joel chapter 2. So on the one hand, prophecy and the office of prophet are well-known gifts. And it was a well-known office to any reader of the Bible. Uh, for instance, the Old Testament prophet played a dominant role in Israel's history. In the Old Testament, the saying, Thus saith the Lord, right? We all know it typifies what the Old Testament prophet was. The, the prophet in the New Testament, though, has no less a prominent role. For instance, um, I want to do a little bit of background work, so I want to apologize from the beginning, actually, about this. This is going to be a deeper study for us. Okay, We're going to try and consider a lot because there's a lot to have to think through with this gift. So, we're going to do some good Bible study. I want to cover this issue of the office versus the gift. But in regard to the office of prophet in the New Testament, we read Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he says this, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, that's the office, third teachers, and then he moves into the gifts, miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, so forth. We've covered all those. So God has appointed in the church prophets just behind the apostles. If you turn to the book of Ephesians, go to Ephesians chapter 2. This has been a paramount book as I've studied this gift for me to help me understand what the gift and what the office is and was. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul's talking about what God has done in the gospel era as he's brought Jews and Gentiles together in one body. That dividing wall, that separating wall between us is gone in Christ Jesus. He's removed it. He's made us one. And that foundation, verse 220, the, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's a very significant statement on the one one that led me to a lot of questions, honestly, it led me on this journey. I'd always read Ephesians 2.20, and that statement, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as though the prophets was talking about Old Testament prophets and the writings of the prophets. For instance, in Luke chapter 24, this is how Jesus uses that statement, the prophets. If he was walking on the road to Emmaus, you remember the account. And the disciples on Emmaus didn't recognize who Jesus was in his resurrected body. And here's what Jesus said to him, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? 
Then it says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So I'd always read Ephesians 2.20 in that sense of the Old Testament prophets and all they'd written about Jesus and now the New Testament apostles confirming what has now been fulfilled in Jesus. That's the foundation of the church. There's a lot of problems with that and there's a lot of questions. And quite honestly, very good Bible teachers and scholars are split on how to interpret this. Is Ephesians 2.20 speaking about Old Testament prophets or the New Testament prophets? Now I have to admit, I've converted. Um... I now see, according to Ephesians 2.20, that I think the prophets there are New Testament prophets, the office of prophet. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. This is what did it for me. Beginning in verse 4, actually, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. The mystery of Christ, which is the foundation of the church, it is the church, was revealed by the Spirit of God to who? The apostles and prophets. Not to previous generations. That would exclude then the Old Testament prophets. That was a mystery to them, even though they foretold something's going to happen. The mystery of it, they didn't know. That was something revealed to the New Testament apostles and prophets. Then in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11, in giving gifts to the church, Jesus gave first apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Okay? So, where I've come to in understanding this stuff bears significance on the, uh, this, this question bears upon the significance of the office and the gift of prophet and prophecy within the church. So, Let's do this. First, I want to talk about offices and gifts because this will help us understand the gift of prophecy. We're going to work our way toward that by first looking at the office of prophet. Offices in Ephesians chapter 4, as we just read, there's some very important distinctions that a lot of commentators don't make and a lot of Bible readers don't make that are important in answering some questions. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that Jesus gave gifts to the church. And then he lists those church, those gifts as apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. They were offices. It was Jesus who gave them. He gave them to the church and they were offices. In our study, we've been looking at spiritual gifts as well, but the word for gift in Ephesians 4 and the word for spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians are two different words. They're talking about different gifts. In spiritual gifts, it's the Holy Spirit who gives gifts to individuals. In Ephesians, it's Jesus who gives gifts to the church as a whole. It's very important. What Jesus gave to the church were offices to fulfill ministries. What the Holy Spirit gives to individuals are gifts to operate in a ministry. Does that make sense? Why is this important? Well, because there are some who still hold that the office of for instance, apostles still exists. And they call themselves apostles in the sense of the New Testament apostles. There are some that hold that the office of prophet still exists. I don't believe that's the case because the offices were particular to a ministry that Jesus gave to the church. When that ministry was fulfilled, the office doesn't need to exist anymore. That was the case with what we read in Ephesians 2. Uh, Ephesians 3.5, what was the role of the apostle and prophet? To unfold the mystery of the gospel for the church. That was their ministry. They laid that foundation. That was the ministry. When that ministry is fulfilled, those offices no longer are needed. Okay, so I don't believe that the office of apostle exists anymore. That same question then is applied to the prophet. I don't believe that the office of prophet is needed anymore as well because of what the office and the ministry was. However, this doesn't mean for our purpose that the gift of prophecy has ceased either. I want to read something too because this is, uh, again, this is deeper, so follow me. This is where a lot of people get messed up and start splitting hairs. 
Um, I've, I've mentioned next week what I'm going to do is a study on what gifts are still in operation in the church today. Some who hold that the miraculous gifts have ceased, others hold that they do not or have not. And this issue that, that I want to address now bears upon that. So if the office of prophet has ceased, then has the gift of prophecy ceased? Many people say yes. John MacArthur, who is a cessationist, in other words, he believes the miraculous gifts have ceased, actually says no. And I, I agree with him. Here's what John MacArthur himself says. Now he's commenting on 1 Corinthians 13.8. 1 Corinthians 13.8 is the passage that uh, cessationists use to say these, these gifts have ceased. says this, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So that's the proof text people who believe the gifts have ceased use to say prophecy, tongues, all these other gifts have ceased. But MacArthur cautions us. He says this, There's a big debate today about whether the gift of prophecy still exists. Not the office, the gift. There are people who want to say that prophecy is passed away based on 1 Corinthians 13.8. They say that prophecy has been done away because the perfect thing, i.e. the Bible, has come. When the Bible was finished, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge passed away, according to Paul. Now that's usually the viewpoint, he says, given in order to eliminate tongues. But when they have eliminated tongues, they also have to eliminate prophecy and knowledge. Because they are in the same verse and connected together. That's how Paul wrote it. Paul, so MacArthur concludes, I believe that poses some very serious problems. We will assume that prophecy as a gift has not been done away with. Now, I agree with him. You can see why. Okay, working through these issues actually brings up more and more questions. Okay, So that's why I put this gift to the end. So I will teach, moving forward from here on out this morning, I'm going to teach from the viewpoint that the office of prophet has ceased, but the gift of prophecy is still in operation today. So with that, let's consider what is this gift of prophecy. So first, the gift of prophecy. The word in the Greek, it's a compound word, prophetia. It comes from the verb propheteu. In its basic form, pro means before, and themi means to speak. So literally it means to speak before. That's what prophecy literally rendered means, to speak before. It is one of the communicative gifts given to the church to communicate the gospel alongside of preaching, teaching, word of wisdom, and word of knowledge. There's five communicative gifts. It's chief among them, according to Paul. Prophecy was to be a particular mark, as I said, of the new covenant when God poured His Spirit out on all flesh. Prophecy was not limited to men. Joel said He would pour out His Spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. In fact, we're told in the New Testament the daughters of Philip, the evangelist, were all prophets. In the Old Testament, there was prophets who were female. So it was not limited to males. On the day of Pentecost, as I said, also Peter quotes that very verse and prophesies as evidence that the new covenant has now been inaugurated. It began with the blood of Christ being shed and His resurrection sealing all the promises for us. So most people today, however, when they hear the word prophet or prophecy, they think not of the basic definition speaking before, but they think of a fortune teller, pretty much. I remember seeing on the news there's a church uh, we need to write them off as false prophets at this point, but they keep trying to predict and tell us when the Lord will return. Do you remember when that happened a few years ago? And once again, they were wrong. Now we're going to see when their prophecy doesn't come true, the Lord has some very severe directions for them. We'll get to that later. But I remember seeing after the, the day they predicted the Lord was going to return, the end of the world would be here, and it didn't happen. Someone had bought a billboard that simply said, that was awkward. And I loved it. <laughs> yeah, that's awkward. The problem with it is, though, people who are not believers see guys like this and they discredit the truth. And that's the problem with people who try and pretend to be prophets. So I want to be very clear on what this gift is. 
And we're going to work through that to answer questions. So despite the Bible depicting, some aspects of prophecy are foretelling. That is true. But that is not the dominant idea of what biblical prophecy is. That's the dominant idea most people have of prophecy. But the Bible depicts the major or dominant idea of what prophecy is, is forthtelling, not foretelling. Okay? So let me summarize it this way. What is prophecy? First and foremost, predominantly, it is forthtelling, speaking the word of God before or putting the word of God before the people. Usually it differs from preaching and teaching this way. Prophecy usually was brought to bear on a particular issue. If the nation of Israel, for instance, in the Old Testament, was going wayward from the Word of God and the worship of God, the prophet would come and what would he do? He would call Israel back to obedience. He would speak the Word of God forth to that situation, to the people, And most of the time, he was calling them back to what they already knew. So it was not foretelling. It was foretelling, and more properly, maybe saying, reiterating what you know. It was bringing to bear upon what you're doing the Word of God in a very forceful, direct, powerful way. That's the major predominant idea of prophecy. However, there is a real and second aspect of prophecy that was foretelling. So let's, ask, let's talk about the scope of prophecy, and then we're going to get into those, those two ideas a little bit more. So let's talk about prophecy as forth-telling the Word of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Now, this was one of those passages again that... Uh, did I say Romans chapter 6? I meant Romans chapter 12, verse 6. My apologies. This was one of those verses that led to many questions because of how it's translated in most Bibles including the ESV, which I use. So here in Romans chapter 12, as you guys know, Paul lists some of the spiritual gifts. Prophecy is listed here and in 1 Corinthians. But in verse 6, Paul writes this, "...having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith." That's the ESV translation. Your Bible might say it this way, if prophecy in proportion to your faith. Does anybody's Bible say that in the singular? Okay, yours does? Okay. Some say singular, your. Some say plural, our. That poses some problems. Okay, it's a difficult passage to understand. Let's define some words to try and get to the bottom of what's Paul saying here. The word proportion, first of all, literally means... um, it literally means the measured out or the limit, i.e. there's no more to give. It's been measured out. It's been, here's the limit. This is the proportion. This, this is the room you have to work with, is the idea. Okay. So if you're going to prophecy, here's the room you have to work with. The limit. The measured out proportion. That's not really what's at stake as far as understanding. It's the word our, your, or something else. Okay, if if the ESV is correct, and many believe it's how you need to interpret it, in translating it our faith, then what that does is that it renders the act of prophesying, you are only to speak so long as you have faith that the Lord has truly revealed something to you. You are to speak forth the Word of God only in relation to your faith that is truly from God. If that's how we are to translate this verse, whether it's in the singular or plural, it doesn't really matter. That's how you have to understand it. There's a couple different problems with translating it this way. First is the idea of a prophet speaking only if he is confident that it was the Lord is problematic. You don't see that anywhere else in Scripture. What you do see is actually the opposite. When a prophet spoke, it was, thus says the Lord. (laughs) Right? In fact, Amos the prophet said it this way, the Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? So the prophet was commanded to speak forth whatever it was that God gave him to speak, and he did it without hesitation. So you don't actually see the idea that the ESV gives us, unfortunately, 
of, of hesitation. Well, I don't know if that was from God. I mean, can you imagine the prophet Isaiah speaking about the virgin birth of Christ 600 years before it happened? You know, I'm not sure about this, guys. Take it or leave it. <laughs> no. It was very definite, very confident. Here's the sign that the Lord is going to give you. Behold, the virgin will conceive. And she did. So you don't see that idea in Scripture. Secondly, and this is really what nails in the coffin for me, in the Greek, there's the definite article. In other words, how it reads in the Greek is, he who prophesies do so in proportion to the faith. Does that make sense? It's no longer my faith. It's the objective standard, the faith that's been given to the church. Now what that's referring to gives us a very different idea. Jude says it this way. Jude says, you need to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. God has given us a body, a revelation, the gospel. He's entrusted it to the church, and it is the faith. It is what we believe. It is what we preach. It's the measured standard of all things. This is a very common idea in Scripture. Right? Let me just give you some examples. Not only is this translation not foreign to the Scriptures, it's actually supported by many. As I said, Jude 3. Hebrews 1.1, the writer of Hebrews opens up his epistle saying this, In many ways, in previous times, God spoke to us through the prophets in many different means. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. That's it. Then in chapter 2, we read last, uh, last week, verses 1-4. through 4. God affirmed the message of the gospel. How? With signs and wonders and miracles. Those who heard it, the apostles, also affirmed what? The message of the gospel through signs, wonders, and miracles. It was all about the miracles were not about just doing a magic show. They were testifying to the truth of something. In particular, they were testifying to the truth of the gospel that's been revealed the measure of faith, the faith delivered. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 2 to Timothy, his last words, his last letter to Timothy. Timothy, the things that you have heard from me, the faith, the teachings, you need to take that and entrust to faithful men who will be able to entrust it to others. Paul had an idea of the Word of God that, hey, this has been given to us by the Lord Himself. I've entrusted it to you, Timothy. You need to entrust it to others. There was no more to add to it. The faith's been given. Pass it on. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said this. He says, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel. So we speak. What was it that was given to the apostles? The Gospel. The faith. So he spoke. There wasn't more needed. But perhaps the clearest statement on this is Revelation 19.10. The Apostle John says very clearly, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is prophecy all about? The testimony of Jesus. That goes well with what we know the word prophesy means, to speak before, to put before the Word of God. What is it that the Word of God is? What's been given to us? The Gospel, the testimony of Jesus. And John says there very clearly, it's the testimony of Jesus. That's what the spirit of prophecy is all about. So I think Romans 12, as much as I love the ESV, the reason they translate it our or your is because of verse 3 in Romans 12, which says uh, God has given to each of us a measure of faith that God has assigned. So operate in it. That's why they translate it as yours or ours. I think that's wrong. It's not in the Greek. And it can still make sense when you actually literally translate it from the Greek with the faith. Y'all follow me so far? I know this is a lot. Y'all are doing good. Let's try and get a little more specific, though. What is the aim of prophecy? We know it's to speak before, to put before people the Word of God. But back in our passage in 1 Corinthians, we are told some specific things that prophecy does for us as the church. In verse chapter 14, let's begin in verse 1 and try and get more specific about what is the aim of prophecy. Why does Paul say this gift above every other gift you need to desire? Why is it so important? 
chapter 14, verse 1, 1 Corinthians, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Three things Paul identifies that prophecy does for us as believers and why it's so important for the church. Upbuilds, encourages, and it consoles. Let's define what those words are biblically here in the text. The word upbuilds, the NASB, if you have that translation, says edifies or edification. Literally, this word denotes an act of building. You're building something. It's used in the spiritual sense here to mean to build up, advance in spiritual truths and reality. So what does prophecy do? It upbuilds you in spiritual truth and reality. The prophet putting the Word of God before you is building up your faith in what reality is according to Scripture and God. Now we know this is good. We live in a world with competing worldviews. I've talked about that. We live in a society now that is very anti-supernatural and materialistic. Either God exists and can work in the world, or He doesn't exist and we're on our own. That has some serious implications. What the prophet will do is bring the Word of God to bear upon questions like that, and it'll put it before you say, here's what the Word says. To build you up, to strengthen you in your faith. The word encourages. The NASB has exhorts or exhortation. Literally, this word you know well. It's one of the spiritual gifts, in fact. It's encouragement, it's admonition for the purpose of strengthening and establishing the believer's faith and his possession of salvation. Who of us doesn't go through seasons of drought? Who of us doesn't go through seasons of discouragement in the faith when you're being questioned, being bombarded? You have your own questions perhaps, right? There's seasons for every one of us where we need encouragement in what it is we believe. The prophet then is that person to come and say, here's what God's Word says for you. It is a thus saith the Lord, but it's no longer new revelation. It's more thus said the Lord. The revelation has been given to us. It's been established. It is the foundation. Now the prophet, the gift of prophecy, puts it before you to strengthen, to encourage, and finally to console. This word is the word comfort. Prophecy rightly expounding on the truth will always be a comfort to you, even when you're being disciplined by God. In fact, this is how Hebrews 12 talks about the discipline of the Lord. Hey, church, the writer of Hebrews says, when you're being disciplined by God, don't grow weary and don't resist it. There's encouragement. Why? Because he goes on to say, you know what? No discipline during the time is fun. It hurts but it will bring the peaceable fruit of righteousness. There's the comfort. I know this discipline may last for a season. I love the example of Daniel. Daniel, in historical context, was part of the exiles who were sent to Babylon because of their idolatry that God had been warning for centuries at that point through Isaiah and through Jeremiah the prophets. Well, Daniel was a prophet in Babylon leading the nation of Israel. And it says this, here he, his nation's in the midst of suffering. They're captives, right? No longer is the temple um, worship going on. No longer are they having the freedom that they once did in Jerusalem. Their land was laid waste. Their people were slaughtered. Daniel's in Babylon reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he says this, you know what? I found something that Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, this is going to last 70 years, and then we're out of here. There's a comfort to him. That's prophecy, Right? So those three things, how vital the prophet then, in this sense, the one who's prophesying, putting the word before the people, how vital it is to the church today. In the Old Testament, we also see another usage of prophecy. And I spoke on this earlier, but it was to call people back to the word of God, right? Hey, you guys are going astray. Here's what God has said. Come back to it. And that is the prominent idea. that The Old Testament abounds with that kind of prophecy being given over and over and over, calling people 
back to the Word of God. That is still applicable for the church. When someone with this gift in the church sees that maybe leadership or the the church itself challenging the leadership, going wayward, the one with this gift will stand up and say, we need to pay attention to this passage right here because it bears upon what we're doing. And they'll put the Word of God before the people, before the church, before the leaders, whoever it is. Let's consider this. Because God's spoken to this issue. That's what the gift of prophecy does. It helps keep the church on track. It helps keep an individual on track by putting the Word of God before them. The second aspect, as we talked about earlier, prophecy is foretelling, is also an aspect of prophecy. Now again, this is one of the three issues in prophecy that brings a lot of questions. All right, so we're going to talk about this foretelling. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 14 that prophecy is a sign for believers, not for unbelievers. Look at it, 1 Corinthians 14. Let's begin in verse 20. Paul states, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. The nature of prophecy, in other words, as a sign for believers, is it's always given to inspire faith. There's an interesting thing I want to consider and observe here. What you see very often on these charlatans on TV who claim to be prophets, making predictions, is that they will give some supposed prophecy that the Lord gave them, and then they'll call you, just believe me. Right? Do you realize that scripturally that's always backwards? Always. The prophet, if he's truly been given a word from the Lord, he'll put it out there and say, believe it or not. If it comes to pass, then your faith will be strengthened. And that's how it worked. So I I say that to give you some discernment and wisdom. When people are claiming to say something of the Lord, the prophet or prophecy, was always to inspire faith. They never call for faith first and then believe me. That's actually how cults work. They just believe me, what I'm about to tell you. Cast out your discernment. Set aside what you know. Just trust me. That's never how prophecy works. Moses, in fact, did this, this foretelling with Israel. Before there was a king in Israel, before they were even in the promised land, Moses foretold You're going to get a king one day. You're going to abandon the Lord and He's going to cast you out into a foreign nation and you're going to be captives. And when that happens, you're going to remember my words and you'll be encouraged. That's a short summation. Guess what happened several hundred years later? They abandoned the Lord. They were taken captive by Babylon. And then they read Moses' psalm that this would happen and they said, dang, Moses was right and their faith was strengthened. They came back to the Lord. That's how prophecy works when it's foretelling. There are aspects, obviously, in Scripture over and over again of prophecies in the sense of foretelling something uh, abound. In fact, this is one of the strongest arguments. I almost went on a tangent in my sermon notes. Bo, you'll be thankful Um, I didn't go on this. There are so many prophecies that have been given in Old Testament times that have now been fulfilled. Uh, there's hundreds of them, literally. There's still some yet to be fulfilled, but there's literally not been a prophecy given that has not been proven true. I read one statistician said this, in, in the prophecies about Jesus Himself, the probability that Jesus the man fulfilled just Uh, eight of the prophecies given about the coming Messiah. Now, keep in mind, there was over 100 prophecies given in the Old Testament about who the Messiah would be. For Jesus to fulfill only eight of those prophecies, it would be like blindfolding a man, covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. 
marking one of those silver dollars and putting it somewhere in the state, telling that man who's blindfolded to walk as long as far as you want, stop, and when you reach down and pick up a silver dollar, pick up that one. Now that's the probability of Jesus fulfilling only eight of them. There was over a hundred given, and He fulfilled all of them. And that's just the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Prophecy and the aspect of foretelling, it is not the prophet coming up with this stuff. The prophet spoke what the Lord Himself revealed. Now I want to read a verse to you out of the book of Isaiah to help you understand this revelatory aspect of prophecy. Isaiah 46, verse 10. I am God, and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying My counsel will stand and I will accomplish all My purpose. Prophecy is one of the greatest arguments for the authenticity of Scripture. But is there still revelation in this sense being given today? This is where we've got to parse some things out. It is true, people who are cessationists believe this gift has ceased or this office has ceased are right to say there is no new revelation as far as the plan or truth of God given. It is closed. So people who found denominations, the Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, these men who claim extra revelation beyond the Scripture were not inspired by the Lord. God has spoken finally and forever His revelation to men. So no, there is no new truth being given. However, there's another sense of revelatory aspect of prophecy that you can't discredit that cessationists do. And this is where I split with them. In Acts chapter 11 is a good example. There's a prophet in the New Testament church named Agabus. We have two of his prophecies recorded in Scripture. In Acts 11, he prophesied that there was going to be a worldwide famine. And there was during the time of Caesar Claudius. So what did it move the church to do? It moved the church to start taking up offerings so that they could help those afflicted by it. Agabus later in the book of Acts would prophesy that uh, the Jews would bind Paul and hand him over to the Romans. Guess what happened? Just that. So this is not new truth being given, but it is directional truth being given. Does that make sense? And there's a difference. This kind of revelation did, and I believe still does, happen today. Now obviously, we see the abuses of this, and so we tend to shy away. People saying, you're going to become a millionaire by this time next year. Okay, let's wait and see if that comes to pass, and then I'll know whether you're speaking of the Lord or not. However, it is foolish, scripturally, to discredit all of it. I know of two pastors in particular. One is my brother, who can testify to some of these things. He has one of his elders, uh, this was when they planted the church, one of his elders, the Lord does, not frequently, he says, but he does speak to him through dreams and visions. They had a, this man came to his elders meeting, he told me, said, the Lord, I had a dream last night, and I believe that the Lord's going to give us a building. Here's what it looked like. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's just wait and see. They sometime later went to tour a building, that another church was actually in negotiations to get, they toured the building and, and this elder said, this was it, this is, this is what I saw right here. So they just backed off, let this other church do their negotiations. They had faith that those negotiations were going to fall through and guess what happened? It fell through. They then approached my brother's church about getting it. They walked in and out of the meeting with the building. I had another I read another pastor who the exact same situation happened to them with a church building. There's a, a pastor in Singapore who works in Vietnam as well. If you know much about that area of the world, it is one of the most difficult areas in the world to work in as a Christian, being communist, being very aggressive. This man is the head of a huge church planting network where the church is thriving there. 
And he was telling a pastor that I, I know well and trust about this. He says, that, you know, this was crazy how this church planting movement started here. He says, I went to a, a conference where I was to speak at this conference, and there was a Western man at this conference. I've never met him, didn't know who he was, was sitting there. And this pastor told uh, the pastor I was speaking to, before I went to this conference, the Lord had been putting on my heart to plant churches up north in Singapore. I didn't know if that was from the Lord. I didn't know if that was my own flesh. So I was waiting on it, testing it to see if it was from God. I went to this conference to speak and this Western man who I never met, never knew, came up to me after the conference and said, the Lord wants you to begin planting churches up north. And here's how you're going to know it's from the Lord. This time next year, you're going to have a baby. Sounds familiar, right? This man was an older man. He and his wife had tried having kids and never had luck. Guess what happened? They went home, got pregnant a few months later, and had a baby that time next year. Now this man's heading up a church planting network all over communist Asia. That's how revelatory directional prophecy works today in the church. My cessationist friends have a very difficult time explaining how countless thousands of Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ through dreams and visions today, if this is not true. This is happening all over the world. Now, I agree with them. No new truth is being given. But Satan certainly will not give a vision to someone to come to faith in the Lord. If anything, he'll lead them away. So you do see this kind of directional prophecy given over and over and over. I've read lots of missionaries who this is common for these kind of things to happen to them. So non-revelatory and revelatory aspects of prophecy both need to be considered and understood. But I want to end with my last point. How do we test? How do we know what's from the Lord and what's not? Because this is important and Scripture does speak to this. We're in the New Testament, so find the book of 1 Thessalonians very quickly. Then we're going to go over to the Old, to New, uh, Deuteronomy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Paul says this. Now these are not unrelated short little statements that Paul gives. All that follows that we're going to read are connected together. This is how, church, we learn to test all things. Verse 19, Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Those are connected. You can quench the Spirit by despising prophecies, in other words, to put it positively. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What is Paul referring to in testing all things, holding fast to what is good, abstaining from evil? He's referring to prophecies. And he's giving the church a warning, don't despise this gift. He said earlier, as we read in 1 Corinthians 14, above every gift we should want this gift, the ability to put before the, word of, before the people the Word of God. Don't despise it. And the revelatory aspects of it, don't despise it. If it's contradicting something already revealed in the Word, what do you know? It's false. I've, I've said this before as an illustration that I heard a pastor give. He was teaching a Bible study one time where uh, it, was a, it was a mixed group and a man had some affection for a woman who was attending the Bible study and then one day declared in the Bible study, the Lord has told me I'm supposed to marry so-and-so. Sounds very authoritative, like God spoke to me. The only problem was she was married already. We know that man is speaking out of his own flesh. That's not the Lord. So that's one way you can test it. If it contradicts revealed truth, it is false. 1 Corinthians 12.3 said this, No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. That's false. If someone comes to you prophesying something that claims new revelation apart from this, we know it's false. God has finished His revelation to mankind in the Gospel. The final authority 
in Revelation was His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. So if someone comes saying, God gave me a new revelation, and it's an addendum to this, no, He didn't. I have no doubt you might not have had a vision or some kind of experience, but it was not the Lord. And most of the time, those kind of visions and prophecies contradict what is already revealed in truth as well. So, test it with what we know revealed. Thirdly, if someone prophesies something that would be sinful, we know it's false. Go to Deuteronomy with me. Chapter 13. This is an interesting passage in 13. And you'll see why. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, now get this, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and then if he says, let us go after what? Other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. What's interesting about that passage is very clear that some people will get dreams and visions and it will come to pass. And it was not the Lord. What they advocated was worshiping somebody or something else. It would be sinful. We know that person is a false prophet. In fact, it goes on, that man will be stoned for teaching the abandoning of the Lord. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 18 with me real quick. We'll begin wrapping this up. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses actually prophesies in this passage about the coming of a, a prophet like him, which we know was the Lord Jesus. But beginning in verse 14, says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see His great fire any more lest I die. That's when God descended on the mountain, you remember, and gave Him the commandment. The Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? Verse 22 is our key. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that, a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. The final test in testing people is if they... I believe in directional prophecy. I think the Lord can reveal to the church something that will happen. There's going to be a famine. We need to start taking up an offering to help our brothers. Okay? I believe that. However, if someone claims something's going to happen, or this or that, the Word of the Lord came to me, and it does not come to pass, what's this say? He's false. Prophets have the most incomparable track record of any profession if they're truly a prophet of the Lord. They are right 100% of the time. That's how you know it's from the Lord. So, pretty high standards if we're going to claim the Lord's given me a revelation. If it was of the Lord, it will happen. As we read in Isaiah 46, I am the Lord, there is none like me, declaring the end. From the beginning. It's nothing for the Lord to disclose to us what will happen in the end. He sees all things in one present now. He's eternal. And He can certainly make known to us who are in time what will happen years or days or months from now. So, this is a gift super important to the church. Lots of issues wrapped up in it. Lots more questions you may have. 
I encourage you to ask them and work through it, searching the Word of God. My encouragement as well, what I've learned in studying this gift, even with good pastors and theologians, is they see very often the abuse of this gift and tend to write things off that they shouldn't. And I want to caution our church from that. There are things you need to rightly be cautioned on. Don't trust these things. But there's other things we're told by Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Don't despise these things either. You take it case by case. You be wise. You learn how to test. Father God, thank You so much for Your Word. That what You've needed to reveal to mankind that we may come to know You, that we may be saved from our sin, that our hope in Christ in all eternity might be sealed has been given to us. So that we need not be afraid of anything. We have what we need to test. We have what we need to gain discernment. But Father, You are supernatural and Your ways are supernatural. Let us not despise the ways that You still work in Your church as well. Let us be wise. But Father, we want to know that You are working, as we just sang, in us, through us, with us, for us. And this gift above all, Paul says, is to be desired for that. Through it, You warn the church. Through it, You prepare the church. Through it, You call the church back to truth. Through it, You build us up. Through it, You comfort us. Through it, You encourage us. I pray as Paul prayed that You raise up people with this gift who can put before us the Word of God and bring it to bear on the situations we face. What does the Lord say? It's different than preaching just truths found in Scripture. It's different than teaching just instructing on what things mean. It is putting the Word of God in a powerful way to bear upon the situations we find ourselves in. How needed this gift is, Lord. I pray You gift many with it. That we would know Your will. That we'd learn to test Your will and discern Your leading. That You'd keep us from harm in that way. You'd keep our foot from stumbling into error. Father, and that the world would see truly You are among us.